Finish this sentence for me. A picture is worth a thousand words. Absolutely right. We've all said that before. A picture is worth a thousand words. And a picture can cause one person to think one thing and another person to think and feel um, completely different. Sometimes a picture evokes thoughts and emotions that can be verbally expressed and sometimes a picture evokes emotions and thoughts that literally cannot be verbally expressed. And so hang with me for here just a minute here. I'm going someplace with this introduction. I grew up here in Missouri, about four miles west of the Mississippi, actually, as the crow flies. I think I have a picture of that, actually. In other words, I grew up, you can see it here, in the sticks. <laughs> there is absolutely... Not a whole lot surrounding the house that I grew up in right there, except for woods and hills and farmland. I, I, have, I still have, I haven't been there in a long time, but I still have vivid, vivid images of that place. I, I remember sitting in my grandpa's tree stand, looking out over the early morning over a hill, and at the bottom of that, a river, and, and beyond that, more hills, and beyond that, more hills and cattle land. And I remember the picture of that. It's burned into my memory. I remember the, the feelings and the, and the joy, the peace that I felt looking over that. And then I went from home to college at Southwest Baptist University up north in Bolivar and uh, spent a lot of time, probably too much time, if I were to be completely honest, on the lakes uh, fishing. And we have a lot of great memories of beautiful land that are still a part. I can still remember them in in my head. They're, they're burned there. And then I went from there to Colorado, and I remember seeing the mountains for the very first time. Our students just got back from here, but I remember driving I-70 west and seeing the mountains rise up from the horizon, and they just keep getting, they keep, they got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And Missouri country boy, growing up in the sticks, I remember thinking, I thought my grandpa Hayes had big hills, like, that's a big hill. And I remember the, the sunrises, all of those pictures are, are still there in my, in my mind. And now that I'm living here in southwest Missouri again, I'm enamored with the beauty around us here. Uh, we have a frame in our house that says, the lake is our happy place, because I find peace of mind there in nature. Um, I find quiet of mind, especially whenever I'm fishing on the lake, especially whenever I'm catching fish. <laughs> Uh, we're preaching through the Psalms this summer, and Psalm 19 is the one that came to my mind, and I think it's because of all of these vivid images that I have in my mind of, of just the beauty around us, the, the beauty that I grew up in, the beauty that, has, that you can see almost anywhere you look on this earth. I believe that there is a reason that we can find rest and peace of mind in creation, I believe that there is not a day that goes by, nor a place in the world where God does not extend his ministry of healing and humility and hope and happiness to those who would receive it, especially through what we see when we look up. What we see when we look up during the daytime and what we see when we look up at nighttime so I want to read this text. We'll be reading it kind of throughout the sermon. I want to read just the first six verses again to get back to the text. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. 
Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words. Whose voice is not heard? Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat." God created nature to display his glory to us. God created a a picture, if you will. And according to the psalmist, God speaks through what he has made. And he means for you to hear what he has to say. Since God never speaks in vain, he means for what he says to minister to you, to meet some need that you have. Now, that's not to say that God only speaks through the sky or that the skies are the only thing that speak of God's glory. All of creation tells of God's glory, the mountains, the lakes, the oceans. And before we go any further, I just want to clarify something that's really important. God is not nature, and nature is not God. We're we're not pantheists. A pantheist is someone, it's the doctrine that God is the transcendent reality of which the material universe, and human beings are only manifestations. Genesis 1.1 exclaims, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So to look at creation or to look at the sky and to worship it is idolatry. What do I mean by that? Here at the very top of your uh, bulletin card this morning is a long sentence that I believe that it is encompasses what Psalm 19 is about. Psalm 19 is intended to prove that the idolatry and irreligion of mankind are inexcusable. The author of Psalm 19 considers both the works of nature and the words of divine revelation as perfect laws of the same hand standing firmly by the same authority, both containing instruction for the entire world, and restoration for God's particular people. That's a long sentence. I'm going to leave it up there for just a second. A picture is worth a thousand words, and the psalmist tries to express what he sees in the picture of the heavens. The heavens are speaking something to the psalmist. The heavens are telling him something. In verse 2, the psalmist writes this. He says, day to day pours out speech. But then immediately, in verse 3, he says, there is no speech. There are no words. Their voice is not heard. They're telling him something with no words. God is speaking to the psalmist, but not through audible words. God is communicating his own heart, his own mind, to the psalmist's mind and heart. But he's, God's communicating this through light and sound and color and contrast and shape and proportion, and design, and motion, and magnitude. And in verse 4, the psalmist says, their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Speechless speech, voiceless voice, wordless words, and yet somehow the psalmist got the point that God is pouring forth communication about himself to everyone everywhere in the world. Psalmist says in verse 2, day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. 
How much can we know of God from just his creation alone? Well, I think it might be helpful to return to the illustration of a picture, or better yet, to the illustration of a painting. Now, I'm not going to claim to know anything about art. (laughs) Okay, let's just get that out in the open. I'm not one to sit down in front of a painting and stare at it. I don't claim to be able to look at painting, a painting and study it and glean interpretation or emotion. In other words, I'm not so much the guy that you want to take you on a tour of the French Louvre, okay? I, I just... I'm more of like, if you want to take me to Bass Pro into the Wildlife Museum and study taxidermy art, I'm your guy. Let's go do that. But as it turns out, I do know a guy, okay? And you might have met him here on Sunday mornings, on Tuesday morning Bible studies. His name is Greg Chappelle, and he's a local artist here in Nixa who can, he can paint fantastic paintings. He attended a lunch fellowship here recently we held at John and Carol Vaughn's, and afterwards he showed me a pamphlet of some of his work, and I'm telling you, they're very, very impressive. And so I called him this past Thursday just to see if I was on the right track with this painting sermon illustration, because again, I don't know a lot about art, but I had a theory. So apparently, a couple of things happen in our minds instantly when we see a painting, and they happen intuitively, almost, almost immediately and, and subconsciously. The first is that we understand that this painting is not alive. Okay, the duck is not really flying It's not a real cloud floating in the background. The waves are not actually moving, even though they appear to be. We don't expect the painting to do anything. We don't expect it to say anything. We understand intuitively that this is the the work of an artist's hand, of a a creator who who has a talent of, of making images like this. The second thing that happens intuitively and immediately is that we evaluate it. Is it beautiful or not? We think, wow, that's impressive or not. Okay, do you get where I'm going with this? It's a lemon. It's a, it's a lemon eating a person. It, it just needs to swallow the last leg. A for effort, I guess. I don't know. In this passage, the psalmist focuses on the heavens. And he doesn't deny that the earth or the sea don't teach the same lessons. He focuses on a striking and excellent part of creation, specifically the sky above him. The sky above him, which a man literally must be blind to not see. John Calvin wrote this. He said, when a a man from beholding and contemplating the heavens has been brought to acknowledge God, he will learn also to reflect upon and to admire God's wisdom and power as displayed on the face of the earth, not only in general, but even the minutest plants. Returning from Egypt through the Mediterranean, Napoleon heard his officers avowing atheism. Basically, these guys were saying, there is no God. And pointing to the stars, Napoleon said, then who made all of these? Atheism has no answer for that. Now, here's another side note. I thought about cutting this one out because I've got too many words in this sermon, but I'm going to go ahead. During my time in Colorado, I was on staff at a church, uh, and I served under a guy by the name of Ralph Eberhardt. And Ralph was the church business administrator. Ralph loved the outdoors. I think he was a 
I think early 60s, whenever I got there, he loved the outdoors. We elk hunted almost every year together. And I remember one hunt in particular, we were exhausted walking back to the camp. And we were lying on a wood bridge over a river, um, just staring up at the stars. So picture that in your head, a bunch of exhausted dudes in camo staring up at the stars. Ralph started pointing out satellites as they zoomed across the night sky. And he could tell us which company put that satellite in space based on the trajectory of the satellite across the sky. Now, you might be thinking, yeah, right. Ralph, not only was a church administrator, but he had retired from Lockheed um, Martin Marietta from 37 years of service at Lockheed as a project manager. And he was the manager over low-gravity physics and fluid management in advanced propulsion systems. He was an actual real-life rocket scientist. 37 years as a rocket scientist, and he sent uh, the Cassini to Mars, and and Lockheed actually called him back out of retirement for a day or two just to come to their facility and watch Cassini succeed its mission on, on the big screen. But Ralph was also the guy who took several of us young pastors to the Shepherds Conference for the very first time, and then every year thereafter, he paid our way, bought our hotel rooms, paid the admission for it, and he, it was because he got more excited about God's word than he did about launching rockets into space. And there's a reason for that, because every time that Ralph and his colleagues were working on something, a picture came back to him, he would, he would teach them the gospel and say, God put that there. God put that there. God put that there. His whole career. And I, I just won't ever forget it, that he was so impressed, looking up, I was impressed that he knew the names of satellites, but Ralph would look up at the stars and think, God made that. In June of 1858 at Lewisburg, Virginia, some 2,000 feet above the level of sea, the atmosphere was in the best condition for seeing. The heavens were so brilliant that I do not think I can forget the splendid vision. Bright stars and numerous nebulae overwhelmed my imagination Had a man never before beheld such a sight, it seems impossible, but that he must have confessed a God. So stupendous and glorious is the blazing universe above and around us that one of our prophets has said, an undevout astronomer is mad. It's William S. Plumer. Cicero said this, what can be so plain and so clear as when we behold the heavens and view the heavenly bodies that we should conclude that there is some deity of a most excellent mind by whom these things are governed? The Apostle Paul says that from God's works of creation, we can learn his eternal power and Godhead. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown, has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, and so they are without excuse. The main point, I think, here is that the traces of God's glory are so strongly impressed upon the heavens that they need no speech to make God known as their creator, but as heralds of the divine greatness, the heavens publish abroad his glorious existence. So three points I want to take so far from this. Number one, there is a creator. Number two, the creator communicates his existence to everyone everywhere. And number three, the creator is incomprehensible, glorious, and good. John Piper summarizes it this way. 
God means for two things to hit home to our hearts without any words or any extended reasonings. First, the Creator shows us the sky, the sun, the moon, the stars and clouds and sunrises and sunsets, and immediately with no words, we know that this was made. This was created. This was designed. And secondly, this Creator must be glorious. All of the evolutionary speculation about the origin of the universe cannot shake loose that profound, immediate, plain perception of the mind and the heart. This is the work of a designer. This is a painter, a creator. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And let's just keep in mind that these things that the psalmist are talking about are only the handiwork of the Creator. These are just the outskirts of God's glory. And if this is just a creation of the Creator, how much more glorious must the Creator be? And it gets even better. The psalmist goes on to try to describe the joy that is beginning to dawn in his soul. He continues to write this. He said, In them the heavens, he, meaning God, has set a tent over the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. I don't think the main point here is the description of the sun, which he tries to describe as a bridegroom who day after day, as if it were the most joyful day of his life, emerges like a, a strong man with his, in his best apparel and, and with his best men. I think the main point here is that God created the sun, and then God set a tent for the sun. God set the entire expanse of the universe as a canopy over the sun, and he sends the sun out, in the morning so that we might know something about this great God, about this creator. Joseph Addison wrote a hymn entitled The Spacious Firmament on High. It says, What though nor real voice nor sound amid their radiant orbs be found, in reason's ear they all rejoice and utter forth a glorious voice forever singing as they shine the hand that made us is divine. The very beginning of last week's service, I saw a short video clip from Piper, and in it, Piper asked the question to his audience from which today's title of the sermon actually comes. He asked the question, what do you see when you look up? Because the heavens are boasting the gloriousness of God. And so I ask you today, when you look up, what do you see? Do you see it just a massive ball of heat hurling through the universe that gives light to your activities during the day? To you, is the sky merely an atmosphere that brings rain, snow, wind, and drought? The psalmist looks up, he sees the skies and the firmaments, and intuitively he knows that these inanimate things are controlled and governed. The psalmist has something even higher, of even higher excellence to celebrate than what he sees. The psalmist sees the beautiful attributes of creation and looks beyond it to the glorious attributes of the creator. Alexander writes, The God whose glory is thus shown forth by material creation is the author of a spiritual law, which the psalmist now describes in the next three verses by six characteristic names 
six qualifying epithets, and the effects produced by it. So here are the six attributes that the psalmist names just in this psalm. Verse 1, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. What law is the psalmist talking about? Obviously, he says it's the law of the Lord. Law, or Torah, is the comprehensive term for God's revealed will. This word law could also be rendered doctrine. Doctrine is a particular principle, position, or policy. It's a a set of beliefs that are taught. In Psalms chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, he says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So the psalmist sees the beauty of general revelation in the skies. He sees the perfectness, and he thinks then of the perfection of specific revelation through the sacred scriptures. Sacred scriptures are literally words breathed out by God. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. We have many laws that have been created by men, whether by non-Christian men or by Christian men, and certainly these laws have helped to foster civil discipline, and, and we've benefited from them. But we don't think of these laws as perfect. Like our description of our laws by men, our description wouldn't be perfect. And secondly, man's laws cannot revive the soul. When was the last time you got a speeding ticket because you broke the law of 35 miles an hour and your first thought was, wow, that law is perfect. I feel revived by this citation. The psalmist knew what it was to follow laws, but even perfect obedience to the law could not convert the soul from wandering. It couldn't convert the soul from errors, from sin, from sickness or death. The law didn't have the power to convert the soul to truth, to righteousness, to life, to God. So the psalmist knew from God's own words that God alone has the power to save and to revive the soul. Listen to this, the Bible never views human speculation apart from the word of God as a sufficient basis on which to rest saving faith. Such saving faith according to the scripture is always confidence or trust in God that rests on the truthfulness of God's own words. So number one, the law of the Lord is perfect. Secondly, the psalmist then says that the testimony of the Lord is sure, making the simple wise. So the word testimony has not been found in the Psalms up to this point, but that word testimony was common in the, in the Pentateuch. In his word, God appears as his own witness for truth and righteousness. God's testimony is his word. It's sure, meaning his testimony is reliable, durable, faithful, trustworthy, standing forever, and his word is to be believed. His testimony is also a term for his covenant declaration. R.C. Sproul said that as the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, so the denial of God is the height of foolishness. 
Psalmist says here in this passage, the testimony of the Lord, what God reveals about himself is perfectly suited to make us wise, not only for the true and excellent content of it, but also God's testimony is clear. It teaches the best lessons in the simplest way. God's testimony is precisely adapted to our own weaknesses and wickedness. The creator knows our hearts. His testimony is perfectly suited to make us wise And God's testimony will influence every nation for his own glory. Third, the psalmist writes that the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The word precept could also be translated statutes. The statutes of the Lord are right. The precepts of the Lord indicate here the precision and authority with which God Addresses us. The very simple point here is that no regenerate man considers any commandment of God as grievous, but rather he delights in the law of God. The Apostle Paul said, I I delight in the law of God in my inner being. And of course, all the other parts of revealed truth make God's people glad. Here he says, The precepts of the Lord are right. He who loves God's precepts, will love the promises and the doctrine of God. Fourth, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The word pure, meaning the commandment of the Lord is absolutely free from injustice, from error, and from sin. Septuagint used this word to communicate clear and radiant and bright. Just one Passage, or just one chapter back in Psalm 18, verse 30, the psalmist writes, This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 12, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening our eyes. God's revelation of himself removes a thousand misconceptions and prejudices and stupidities, allowing us to see the true, real nature of God. I envision this kind of like the early morning hours when the fog is so dense on the lake that you dare not navigate it without precaution, but then the sun begins to to rise and it begins to dissipate the fog, allowing you to see clearly, it kind of felt to me like that's what God's revelation of himself does for our souls. It removes all of the misconceptions that we have about him because he said it himself. This is me. This is what I am like. Number five, the fear of the Lord is clean. That's an odd word at first. The fear of the Lord is clean enduring forever. The psalmist writes his own comments on this, and they're found back in Psalm 12, verses 1 through 4, and in Psalm 12, verse 6, where he contrasts the foolishness of men and the purity of our all-powerful God. He writes this, he says, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the fearful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts, those who say with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Men's words aren't clean. 
and they don't endure forever. The psalmist goes on to say, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. I also think he's trying to say that God's holiness commands reverence from eternity past to eternity future. Again, I want to quote R.C. Sproul on this. He said, if you don't delight in the fact that your father is holy, 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 then you are literally spiritually dead. You might be in church, you might go to a Christian school, but if there is no delight in your soul for the holiness of God, you don't know God, and you don't love God. You're out of touch with God. You're asleep to his character. Number six, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Thankfully, God is governed by nothing other than his own character. God will be true to himself above everything, and that is awesome news for us. Verse 10 and 11, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. The things here said to be more desired are God's rules, the fear of the Lord, his commandments, his precepts, his testimony concerning his own reputation. I thought of Job, even after his entire life was ruined. All the while, Job had absolutely no idea he was in the middle of a cosmic demonstration of God's sovereignty. Job said this. He said, if I go to the east, he's not there. If I go to the west, I don't find him. Whenever I look to the north, I do not see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. But listen to what Job said next, because Job knew God. Job knew God based on what God had said about himself, what God had revealed to Job about himself. True, clean. Job says, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. My feet have closely followed his steps. I have kept to his way without turning aside. I have not departed from the commands of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. He stands alone. Who can oppose him? He does whatever he wants. He carries out the decree against me and, and many such plans he still has in store. That's why I am terrified before him. When I think of all this, I fear him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. And then he says this, yet I am not silenced by the darkness, by the thick darkness that covers my face. Job knew God and feared him, and yet Job believed the Lord because, the, because Job trusted the Lord's character. Job didn't trust his own feelings or his own thoughts about God. Job trusted the Lord's testimony because the Lord declared that the Lord is good. Job even said, even if he slays me, I will still trust him. All the way back in Genesis, God made a covenant with Abraham in Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to Abraham as righteousness. The psalmist says in this passage, there is a reward coming for me, and that reward is the mercy of an indescribable God. The God whose glory is shown forth by the material creation, who is the author of a spiritual law. The psalmist has described him by six characteristic good names. But now let's take a look at the effect that this had on the psalmist. Look with me at verses 12 through 14. Verse 12, who can discern his own errors? Actually, we're going to stop right there. The psalmist looks up at this beautiful masterpiece in the sky instinctively, 
Instantly, he knows someone made this. He sees the beauty and the majesty and the holiness of the creator, and he connects the dots between God's general revelation and God's written testimony. And once again, he is aware, completely aware, of his own sin. He's baffled by his own sin. He, he's dumbfounded by it. How, how, can I, how can I be like this whenever he, he is so holy? The prophet Isaiah had a moment kind of like this. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 6, he said, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting high on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two they covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So the psalmist, seeing the glory of God in the sky above, immediately recognizes his sin. And he, he says, God, you are holy, and I am not I can almost hear this thought screaming through the psalmist's head. I need help. There are three effects that come from this, from these attributes whenever the psalmist looks up. First, the psalmist, having seen the beauty and majesty of God, having recognized his own sin, the psalmist believed God for who God said he is, powerful and good. The psalmist says to himself, I can't declare myself clean, but God, you can. I envision the psalmist raising his eyes to the heavens again in humble prayer to this majestic creator. Verse 12b says, declare me innocent from my hidden faults. Psalmist couldn't declare himself innocent of inner sin or outer sin, and neither can we. We need God to declare us innocent. There are only two ways that God's justice can be satisfied with respect to to your sin. Either you satisfy or Christ satisfies it. You can satisfy it by being banished from God's holy presence forever, or you can accept the satisfaction that Jesus Christ has made. Back to Psalm 19, verse 13. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let not them have dominion over me, and then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. If we are to have peace, true peace, lasting peace, we need not only God's pardon, but we also need his power and his protection. As long as we live on earth, this old sin nature, that, which for Christ followers has been put to death and buried with Christ, will continue at times to baffle us. At times that sin nature can creep back up in on us and we're going to say things and we're going to do things and we're going to think things that just leave us dumbfounded with ourselves. But when we understand the character of God, when we grasp something of his holiness, then we begin to understand the radical character of our sin and our hopelessness. Helpless sinners like us can only survive by God's grace. Our strength is futile in and of itself. We are spiritually impotent without assistance from a merciful God. We might dislike giving our attention to God's wrath 
But until we incline ourselves to these aspects of God's nature, we will never appreciate what has been wrought for us by God's grace. Even Jonathan Edwards' sermon on sinners in God's hands was was not designed to stress the flames of hell. The resounding accent falls not on the fiery pit, but on the hands of God who hold us and rescue us from it. The hands of God are gracious hands, and they alone have the power to rescue us from certain destruction. The Apostle Paul said, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I don't understand my own actions. I I, I do what I do not want to do, but... And I do the very thing I hate. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then immediately, Paul says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you know what God has done at infinite cost to himself, he's put you into a relationship so that you will never be rejected by him, then your motivation when you sin is to get up and go to him. You want fellowship with him. When the thing that most assures you is the thing that most convicts you, you'll be okay. Because when you're convicted of sin in a gospel way, it drives you toward God. Without the gospel, we hate ourselves instead of our sin. Without the gospel, we're motivated through all sorts of awful fears and pride. And it doesn't really change our hearts. It it just restrains our hearts. Psalm 130. Psalm 130 commands us, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. He will redeem you from all of your iniquities. So back to 13, verse 13 of this psalm. He says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let not them have dominion over me, and then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. And indeed, from what we've just seen of these other verses, indeed there is pardon and peace and protection for the believer. And the effect of having seen God for who he truly is and what he has done, having seen ourselves for who we truly are, results in his praise. Verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. That's a declaration of surrender. O Lord is a declaration of humble obedience. My rock is a declaration of trust in someone more trustworthy than myself. My Redeemer is a declaration of humble gratitude and praise. If you, O Lord kept a record of sin, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Are you thankful for the holiness of God? I am. It's a dreadful thing to be in the presence of a holy, majestic, all-powerful God, but thank God that in his perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true covenantal, merciful patience and power, he welcomes us to himself through his loving revelation of himself towards us in Christ Jesus. 
Psalm 19, again, is intended to prove that the idolatry of irreligion of mankind are inexcusable. The author of Psalm 19 considers both the works of nature and the words of divine revelation as perfect laws of the same hand, standing firmly by the same authority, both containing instruction for the entire world and restoration for God's particular people. So this summer, as we find our rest in the Psalms and as we find our rest in the beauty of creation, vacations, long walks, hiking, biking, boating, and even the sunrise on our dashboard as we drive to our places of work, I ask you, what do you see when you look up? Do you most prize what he presents or what it portrays of him?